The following is audio from Fellowship Community Church in Centennial, Colorado. If you would like more resources or want to support this ministry, please visit www.fcchurch.org. All right, so this morning, uh, we, uh, we're going to be in John chapter 4. And so if you want to kind of get there um, in, in your Bibles, we'll, we'll jump around a little bit. But we're going to be in John chapter 4. We have a lot to cover we're actually going to be in one of my all-time favorite passages, which is the woman at the well. This conversation that Jesus has with this woman, and I, and I absolutely love it, uh, for so many reasons. And if you are looking at the notes page in your bulletin, and you're like, I am type A, I like the blanks. Where are the blanks? Are any of you like that? It's okay. It's okay. We love you anyway. I'm going to help you out. So we're going we're gonna to give a little background as to why, why Jesus was, was in Samaria in the first place. And looking at this woman's response is, is primarily what we're going to be focusing on. And she does these three things. So here's the outline. If you're that person, I want to help you out so you're not distracted. Right? She, she downplays her sin. She distracts with doctrine. And then she declares her freedom. Okay, so here's the thing. I grew up Baptist. The whole, like, don't you know, drink, dance, or chew, or go hang out with those who do, crowd. But we also, uh, all, the, all the sermon points were always alliterated. And so when I came up with the alliteration for those three points, my inner Baptist child was so happy, it could almost not dance. Like, it, so, um, but that's going to be the outline for us this morning, if you want to, uh, if, th- if that makes it easier for you to follow along. But the Gospel of John is, it's such a, a beautiful gospel, and One of the things I love about it is no matter what part of the Gospel of John you're reading, John tells you why you're reading it. He tells you, here's why this was written down. In in John uh, chapter 20, verse 31, um, it says this. uh, He's saying uh, Jesus did a lot of things, things that aren't written down here. But he goes, but these were written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So there's this... This, this mission statement for the Gospel of John. So any, any passage that we read in the Gospel of John, this is why we're reading it, so that we would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and through believing have life in his name. So that's how we're going to approach this story in, in John chapter 4 with, uh, with this woman at the well. And so uh, I want to give you a little bit of, of background on why it's so unique uh, th- this, especially this little passage, because it's sort of like a, it's its own little story that takes place. So when you read the, the first few verses of chapter four, and then you uh, hop down to, to verse 43, 44, Jesus is leaving Jerusalem, and he's going back to Galilee, his hometown. And it's just, it's kind of this little road trip story, right? So it starts with, I'm going to Galilee, and it ends with, we're in Galilee, so this, this thing happens, this uh, event happens on that way. And so I want to uh, read the, j- just the first few verses for you of John chapter 4, starting in verse 1. It says, Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, 
near the field that Jacob had given to his son, Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, weird as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. And it was about the sixth hour. So this is the, the setup for this. So, so in Jerusalem, people, the, the Pharisees are starting to get frustrated with Jesus. And Jesus makes the decision to go back to Galilee. Okay, so this is, even in itself, is significant. Jesus is not confronting, uh, I mean, he's not avoiding confrontation. We see all throughout his ministry, he has no problem being confronted. But he is avoiding an untimely confrontation, and he's actually moving back to obscurity. Because Galilee is his hometown. When, when you look at, the, at verses uh, 43 and 44, in this chapter, it says, after the two days, which he stays in Samaria for two days, he departed for Galilee. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. All right, so here, here's what he means by that. He said, if I go back to Galilee, everybody knows me. Right? So if you were from like a small town and you go back to that small town, whatever you did while you were gone doesn't matter, right? Like if, I, I grew up in Lubbock, Lubbock, Texas, the cultural epicenter of the world, all right? It is. So I, I actually, I think it's flat because God hugs that part of the world a little closer to himself. But, um, but if you were from Lubbock and you left, and you could become president of the United States and come back, you would still be, oh, you're, you're that kid that threw up at Aunt Muriel's funeral. Right? You're, you're nothing special. And, and so Jesus is saying, I'm going back to my hometown. There's, there's no honor for me there. I'm just Jesus. Okay, so, so he's, he's moving. So it's basically a road trip story that takes place. All right? And so I don't know about you. I love a good road trip story. And my, my favorite is Lord of the Rings. Whatever genre of movie you give, my favorite in that genre is Lord of the Rings because it fits all of them. But outside of that, like, I, I, I love the, the, those good just those road trip comedies. And I don't want to get highbrow on you. Okay, but Dumb and Dumber, Tommy Boy, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, like those, those are our movies, my movies. I don't want to put my wife in that category, but she watches them with me. Um, so the... But, but this is, it's, it's like this road trip in reverse. Like those stories usually start with like something bad's happened and then worse things happen while they're trying to get to their destination. Here, Jesus, like the, he, he's starting to be recognized, but this really great thing happens in the middle. This really beautiful moment that takes place and it's really significant because Jesus is doing a couple of things here. He's modeling his call for the church um, in fact, uh, well, one thing, just going through Samaria, it was not normal, right? So going from Judea to Galilee, like traveling through Samaria was not out of the way, but it was out of the norm. The, the Jewish people hated the Samaritans. They looked down upon them. It was very much a, a there was a racial component to this. It was, it was racism. We hate Samaritans, and here's why we hate Samaritans, because when Israel... And Judea, we're in the Babylonian exile, and the Assyrians uh, sent in their people, and they intermarried with, with some of our people, and then that created the Samaritans. And so they hated the Samaritans because of that, because it reminded them of the exile, and they felt like the, the, 
the Jewish people who married into or intermarried with the Assyrians were somehow betraying their their Israelite heritage. And so they hated them for it. To the point that even though when you look at a map, and you look at Jerusalem, and you look at Galilee, Samaria's right in the middle, but nobody went through Samaria. It was like when you're at Target and you see an ex-boyfriend or ex-girlfriend down an aisle, and like all of a sudden you're like, I, I don't really need what's down that aisle anymore, right? Like they would avoid Samaria by going all the way to the other side of the Jordan River and going up the east side of the Jordan River just to avoid going through Samaria. It was that kind of hate that they would add a day and a half to two days to their journey just to not walk through their towns. Okay, so Jesus has this, there's a statement in John in, in verse four, it says he had to pass through Samaria. That wasn't just because it was the only way. But there was, a, there was something Jesus needed to do there. Jesus also, even, even by doing this, he's modeling for the church. Acts 1.8, um, at, the, at the end of his ministry, when, when he's ascended, you hear this challenge given to the apostles and to the early church. It says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Jesus modeled this, and then he gives it to his church. He says, you're going to do the same thing. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. To the ends of the earth, you're going to be my witnesses. And so he's, he's modeling it, and he says, I've got, I've got to go through here. And when he shows up in Sakaar, right, which is uh, this little village, it's actually translated liar, uh, which is a really great name for a town. Um, and there's a whole story about Jacob. We can read about Jacob as well. Jacob's sons and Shechem. We're not going to get into that. But if you want a, a really awkward bedtime story with your kids from the Bible, that's the one. But I, So go back and read that. But this was around the town of Sakar, this little village. And he shows up and the, the, Jacob's well is there. And I love that, that John points this out. He said that Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. I feel like a lot of times we forget that Jesus got tired. It's comforting, isn't it? Like when we're exhausted to know Jesus, Jesus experienced this. Right? When we just want to sit down. Like after hitting 40 and having four kids, that's like 90% of my existence. It's just, I mean, is wanting to sit down. The other 10% is sitting down. So that's, that's the dream. But anyway, so Jesus, he's tired. He, he, he's resting at this well. It was about the sixth hour. So this is why he's in Samaria, and it's why it's, it's important. And then this woman comes up. And so Jesus is going to have this conversation with her. He's going to initiate a conversation. This is a really big deal because not only is she a woman, and not only is she Samaritan, but she also, as we're going to find out, she has a suspect past and present. Okay? And Jesus initiates this conversation with her, uh, starting in verse 7, verses 7 through 15. Uh, we're going we're gonna to read all of this and come back and look at a few aspects of this conversation. But a woman from Samaria came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. 
The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. So this woman shows up almost taken off guard when Jesus says, hey, give me a drink. Okay, so, so even she understood this. She was like, how do you, a Jew, ask me, ask me for a drink? Because I know that all of you hate us. That, that's her approach. And, and, and we see this even in other parts of Scripture. When Jesus is sharing the story of the Good Samaritan, they were more offended by the fact that the Samaritan was the hero than any other part of that story. Which is why at the end of it, when he says, hey, who loved their neighbor? And they can't bring themselves to say the Samaritan. They just say, yeah, the one who had mercy on the man on the side of the road. Like it's this, this tension. And so she, she recognizes that, but also she is intrigued by living water. She says, give me this water so I, so I won't thirst again. I don't want to come back to this well. Because she's coming to this well in the heat of the day. This is the part, this is after everything, uh, most, most people have already gotten their water. And they're already back in Sakar, And she's coming to avoid the crowds. She's coming so she doesn't have to deal with them because of, of what's going on in her life. She knows that if she shows up and all, all the other women are there and they're getting their water, she's going to get the side eye. You know what I'm talking about? Like they, they, they know they're going to they're gonna be, she's going to hear those hushed whispers and she's just going to know they're talking about her. So she just chooses to avoid that. But she's intrigued by this living water and she's, she's misunderstanding what Jesus is talking about. Because she's just like, oh, well, if I get this living water, then I won't have to come back. I'll never thirst again. But Jesus, when he says this, he's actually making this allusion to the, the, uh, the prophet Jeremiah. So in Jeremiah chapter 2, uh, Jeremiah writes this. He's, he's writing, this is God saying it, but he says, his people have made these two offenses. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves that can hold no water. So he's making this, this allusion to, to the prophet Jeremiah, and she would not have grasped this. And here's why. For Samaritans, they didn't read the prophets. One of those reasons is because so many of the prophets were about the exile. And that's not, they, they didn't want to think a lot about that. But also, their, their scriptures, what they held to was the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. Right? So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That was their scripture. That was what they read. So a statement, a quote from Jeremiah would have sort of gone over her head a little bit. Now that I am you know, on the older side of most uh, youth pastors. And I do things like make references to those great highbrow movies, Dumb and Dumber and Tommy Boy. 
in planes, trains, and automobiles. And all the youth are like, what? What are you talking? Tom, Tommy who? What? You know, so it's, um, I, I, it's that thing of like when you make that reference and it's just, oh, they're, they're not getting it. So she, she doesn't get this reference. And, and she, but she, she's intrigued by it. She wants this living water. And so what happens is as she has this, this draw to it, she's like, hey, give me, give me some of this living water. I'm, I'm ready for it. I want this. I want to be able to hide and keep away from the situations that would make me shame, ashamed of my sin. Because that's why she was coming in the heat of the day. I want to avoid the shame of my sin, not that she wants to get rid of the sin. But if I can avoid the shame of it, I don't ever have to come back. I can hide from that. I can, I can hole up in the house and never talk to anybody and not, not, not hear those whispers. And I get to, I, 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 can, I, can, I can keep from the, the shame part, which is the worst part of her sin. So Jesus responds in verse 16. He says, go and call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. So in this moment, she's downplaying her sin. We're going to see that because Jesus is going to read her mail right there in front of her. Right? She's gonna, he's going to be like, this, this is what's going on. And so if you've ever downplayed something and been called on it, it can, also, it can always be awkward. But here's what happens. In verse 16, Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Awkward. Right? But as we've already seen, Jesus is not one to hold to societal norms. Right? All the Jews go to the east side of the Jordan. I'm going to go through Samaria. No one talks to Samaritans or talks to women. I'm going to talk to a Samaritan woman. I'm going to expound upon her sin. And I think there's, there's something that we can learn from this, which is the idea of trying to make believing in Jesus normal is just, it's, it's a fool's errand. There's nothing normal about following Jesus. That's a good thing. Because it is not normal to love your enemies. And it is not normal to raise from the dead. And Jesus throws off normal. So he enters into this conversation and it's awkward and it's weird for her. And he's, he's pressing on the wound. All of the things she was trying to avoid all the shame of her sin, and Jesus is like, here's what's going on. You had five husbands, and now you're, you're living with a guy that's not your husband. And we don't know much more about her story. We don't know if, her, if she's been divorced five times. We don't know if all of her other husbands died. Uh, if that's the case, it might explain why the new guy's like, I'm not marrying you. Like, I like, I like breathing. And so, the, but this is the... The, where, where he's pressing these wounds. And so her immediate response, after she's kind of downplayed her sin, and Jesus, he, he doesn't call her a liar. In fact, he says, what you've answered is true. Her response was a true statement. Right? I, I don't have a husband. Yeah, you're right. But you also have these other things. 
Okay? And we all have those things in, in our lives that we, can, we want to write it off and downplay it, but we're like, well, nobody's perfect. Well, no, it's sin. We can call sin, sin. And that doesn't diminish the goodness and the grace and the mercy of God. In fact, it's going to highlight it, and we're going to see that. But we can call sin exactly what it is. And the best definition I, re- I remember hearing about what sin is that's just stuck with me, it is cosmic treason against the God of all creation. God who created the world and to sin against him at some level is to say, I would make a better God than you. It is cosmic treason. And so for, for her to have her all of her sin laid out, she responds with the most obvious statement in scripture. Oh, I see you're a prophet. Like, can we just pivot a little bit from this conversation? Right? Like, he, he doesn't know her, and, and this is not, clearly it's not a guess. Right? He knows, he knows the hearts, hearts of men. In fact, um, just in the two chapters before this, it says, Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man. For he himself knew what was in man. So as soon as she showed up, he knew. He knew her story. He knew what she was going through. I'm also, I'm fully convinced that he had to go to Samaria because he knew that this woman was going to come in the heat of the day to avoid the shame of being around other people and he was going to talk to her. This is the intentionality of Jesus that that we definitely see on on full display here. But, But with this woman's response, how much do we relate to that? I just want to downplay my sin. No one's perfect. We all make mistakes. What we can call sin, sin. But then she does what so many of us also do when she says, oh, I see that you're a prophet. She distracts with doctrine. And so in, in youth ministry, when you deal with students, no, I don't know, I, adults are really sneaky about it. Like you guys are really like, it, you gloss it over really well when you're trying to distract with doctrine from your own sin. Children and teenagers aren't quite as good at that, and it's way more fun. Because you can be like, hey, let's talk about honoring your parents. Uh, what's the Bible say about dinosaurs? That's what I want to know. Right? What? Like, that's not what we're talking you know, So there's always this, like, shift of, well, let's talk about this. Or, well, I, I would share the gospel more, but I just, I don't know that I have the words for it. I don't, I don't know that I know enough. I need to learn more. It's really your fault. You haven't taught me enough. That's why I'm not sharing the gospel. Right? Like, it's, it's that, that kind of concept. But, but you can see it, like, if you get on Twitter, and I don't recommend it because it's the cesspool of humanity at this point. But you, you have these, uh, I, I see this all the time, like these pastors and these theologians that are going on, like, a Twitter tantrum. And they're, they're making these accusations. They're like, well, this Bible verse says this, and this Bible verse says this, and I'm going to put this out there with no love and all hate and all shame as though I don't know Jesus. Because I've got my doctrine, and my doctrine keeps me safe from having to deal with my own sin because my doctrine tells me who to hate. Whereas Jesus says, don't hate your own sin. Love others. But that's, that's not what we do, but, but, but you see this, this idea of, with a lot of people, like, 
what it looks like to know about Jesus but not know Jesus. Like right now, I'm, I'm sure that there are a lot of you, I could have a really good conversation about Jokic, right? Nuggets are one game away from winning the NBA Finals. Some of you are excited about this. I know a couple of you aren't, but that's okay. But we could have a whole conversation, and you could probably give me, oh, he's from this country, and he's this tall, and here's his stats that he doesn't even care about, which is some really, I really like him. Um, you can give me all the information, but you don't know him, right? I'm like, hey, what's, uh, what's Jokic's favorite cereal? I don't know. I just know his stats. I know about him. I don't know him. Like, what are his dreams? I don't know. Like, you, we see people, when, when, when they buy into this idea of, like, I can just distract with doctrine, I can use doctrine and I can use theology not as a source to get to know the God that I love more, that I might love him even more than I do now, but to keep God at a distance so I don't grow in intimacy with him so that way my sin doesn't get called out like this woman at the well. So here's how she does this. She goes, I see that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming. When uh, That was my West Texas came out there. Coming, coming, when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who was called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. So she distracts with this, what would have been between uh, the, the Jews and the Samaritans, a really uh, hot-button issue. I'm like, well, you say we've got to worship in Jerusalem, even though you won't let us Samaritans come worship in Jerusalem. So we've built our own temple, but then you said our temple was heretical. Where, so where should we worship? Because we can't worship here, and we can't worship there. And he raises the question, like elevates the question. It's like you're, you're asking a small question. There's a day coming when those who worship the Father will worship in spirit and in truth. Because God is spirit. And he has to be worshipped in spirit and truth. And so what, what I love even about that, that concept of, of it being spirit and truth. Like the spirit empowers us and the truth sets us free. And this, like, this empowered freedom to worship God for who he is correctly. And so he, he elevates the question and in all of this conversation, even when he calls out her sin and, and, and lays it out there for her, he never belittles her. He never mocks her. In fact, he it keeps inviting her in. From giving her the dignity of like, hey, give me a drink, which is not something that a Jewish man would have done. To offering her living water. To affirming what she said, but, but getting to a deeper level and then answering the question at a higher level, all the time inviting her in. 
Like you're not, you're not being pushed away. You're not being turned away because of this. So worshiping in spirit and truth, this, this statement from Jesus, it's, it's so important. And, and she, I think, even realizes in this conversation, like, oh, you're talking about when the Messiah comes. Because, yeah, that's going to be a big deal. And Jesus is like, yeah, I know. It is a big deal. I'm him. And then in, in verse 27, the, the disciples who have been down and have been buying food, they start to show back up. And here's, here's what happens. I love this. So just then his disciples came back, and they marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no, Now, first of all, some like middle school boys kind of feel that too. Like people would marvel if I talked to a woman too. Um, but they, they marveled. He was talking to this woman and no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking to her? I think that this is John in code telling us that Peter wasn't here. Okay. This is, that's completely conjecture. But if Peter was there, he would have asked those questions really loud. So the woman left her water jar and she went away into the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And went out of the town and were coming to him. So this woman who starts this story avoiding the crowd, avoiding all of the people so the shame of her sin is not talked about or displayed, is now running through the town saying, hey, you guys all know what I've done, but this guy, he's on the outside. He told me everything I've done. This could be the Christ. This could be the one we've waited for. Come and see. And I love the, I love the beauty of that. And we're going we're gonna to come back to it here in just a second. But, but the disciples, after this woman runs away, they're, they're trying to get Jesus to eat. Right? And, and he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Like that, just that statement kind of makes me laugh because I make that statement to my kids all the time. I'm like, I got food you don't know about because I hid cookie butter behind the broccoli, right? But, but here they're, they're, they're making the same mistake the Samaritan woman did with the living water. Well, I think the living water is there to make my life easier. And here... He's saying, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap for that for which you did not labor. Others have labored. You've entered into their labor. So here is Jesus still sitting at the well, still tired, having talked to this woman who's run into town. And so while the disciples are trying to get him to eat, hey, get your strength up. Let's keep moving to Galilee. He says, now look, look up. Like the fields are white with harvest. Now the Samaritans would typically wear white robes. And I love that, that picture of him probably pointing down towards the town and all these people in white walking towards them. Like it's the harvest. The harvest is here. So we get to rejoice because of what's, what's happening. And so then uh, in verse 39, it says, many Samaritans from that town believed in him. And this is what I love. Because when she, when she chooses to declare her freedom, 
many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. She went from the shame to declaring, come see a man who told me everything I've ever done. Because here's what Jesus does with our sin. It's not, it's not a small thing. Yes, he forgives us. But then he takes that sin, that act of betrayal that we committed against him, and he flips it, flips it on its head, and he says, this is now a testimony of my grace and my mercy. Because Satan would come along and he would whisper in your ear all of the shame that you should feel for what you've done. So you walk through life terrified, what if people find out what I did? What if people found out what I did? And Jesus comes in and says, I have forgiven you. I have loved you. I have known you. And because of that, you get to go out not caring about what, if they're going to find out about what you did because they're going to know what I did. They're going to know about the grace and the mercy that I've given you, and you are now a trophy of my grace. You get to make much of me and the fact that you've been forgiven, and you get to walk in freedom from that. And um, there's, a, there's a book that Tim Keller wrote on marriage, and he, he worded this idea really well. But he talks about how if you are fully known and not loved... That is our biggest fear. For someone to know us and then choose to walk away. But to be fully loved or to be loved and not known doesn't mean anything. It's sentiment. But to be fully known and to be fully loved in the midst of being known is where freedom comes. And so this woman has experienced this, this freedom and she runs into this town and they all come out. And now because of her testimony, many believe. And they convince Jesus to stay. And it says many more believe because of Jesus. And some of them are even like, hey, like, I, I came because of your testimony, but now I believe because I've heard it from Jesus. And so my, my encouragement for you today, my challenge for you today is if wherever you're at in this, in this story, if you're the person who is still trying to hide from the shame and you're trying to downplay your sin, don't, don't do it. <laughs> Just know that when, when we come and we, we call our sin what it is and we acknowledge it, that our sin is real, but so is our Savior. Our sin is big. Our Savior is bigger. Our sin leads to death. Our Savior is the author of life. So uh, the sin can no longer have power over us and the shame that it would bring no longer has power over us because we get to walk in freedom. And we get to say, I, 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 I'm done with this. I get to move on from it. I have new life in Christ. And I want to encourage you, today could be the day that you meet Jesus, that you walk away in freedom. Walk with Jesus into freedom, I should say. Maybe you're in that mode of distracting with doctrine and you're just trying to figure out, okay, well, if I, if I hate the right groups, then I can be accepted by these other groups and I never have to deal with my own sin. I want to really encourage you to, to think largely about what you hate, what you don't. Because here's, 
here's the truth. We're, we're, we're living in a, in a culture, even this month in particular, you will be bombarded with stories about how you need to live your truth, how you do you. And we know that it's not your truth that sets you free. It's the truth that sets you free. And so we get to not be able to go out in the world and be like, well, I hate these people for believing this thing. But we get to walk in freedom because the truth has set us free. And through that, we get to love other people who have not been set free yet in hopes and prayers that they experience it. That's, that's our hope with that, is that we can walk forward in one of those ways. But here's, here's the thing, we, we also have to tell people about it. The, the excuse of, I don't have the words. I don't know enough. It really falls apart when you see this woman who had a five-minute conversation with Jesus and then is running through town. Come meet a man who told me everything I've done. It wasn't this well-stated gospel presentation. Those are good. They're really good. But just her being able to go back and say, hey, come, come meet the man five minutes after meeting him. Like, you guys got to come see that this could be him. As we walk in freedom, we get to tell other people about that freedom and then invite them into it. Because something I love about the life and the ministry of Jesus is it is really clear that he does not skimp or ration grace and mercy. It is there in abundance. It's there for us. It's there for others. So my prayer for us this morning as we close out and we, we worship, uh, worship our Savior again is that we would lean into this freedom even more. Uh, let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for this conversation. We thank you that it was written so that we would believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God. And that through believing that, we would have life in your name. Help us to not fall into the trap of downplaying our sin, but, but seeing you for the Savior that you are. Help us to not distract ourselves with with doctrine or theology or politics, which seems to be the, the token of the day the, that we all fall into. Lord, I pray that we will, would not be distracted by that, but that we would be reminded that on, a, on a, an eternal cosmic level that we are sons and daughters of the King in Jesus Christ. And that we would deal with our own sin with, with harshness, <laughs> that we would hate our own sin, that we would grow to hate anything that keeps us from being shaped more and more into your image. And Lord, help us to, to live in our freedom in a way that doesn't make light of it, but that draws people to, to want to experience more about this, this freedom that we have in Christ where we can walk through untroubled by our past, untroubled by our status, untroubled by the things that have happened to us or we've done ourselves, but that we get to walk in in the freedom of being a child of God through the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. We love you. It's in Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to audio from Fellowship Community Church in Centennial, Colorado. If you'd like more resources or want to support this ministry, please visit www.fcchurch.org.